Lord willing, we will all be there soon and all be there together with our Lord and the General Assembly. As we gather together today, it is my desire for us to consider covenantal responsibilities for our children's salvation. That's a pretty powerful topic. If you would turn with me in the scriptures to the 89th Psalm, I'm going to bring the message from portions of that psalm, and I will begin reading at verse 4, uh, verse 1 through 4, jumping down to verse 19 after that. Now hear the word of the Lord. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Verse 19, then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David, with my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea, and his right hand over the rivers." He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments... If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. Our gracious Father in heaven who has given us this psalm that has testified not only of the covenant you made with David, but behind it we see the great scene of the covenant of redemption and this covenant that God and the Father and the Spirit have made for the salvation of your people. We are thankful that we can peek into eternity and see these eternal truths and how they have worked out in history and now apply to us and our children. We now ask that the Spirit of God to open our eyes and open our eyes of faith and receive with our heart these truths and to give you praise and thanks for the beauty and the glory of thy great salvation. And today we pray you would renew a right spirit in us and restore that joy 
to the manner in which glorifies you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've had a lot of baptisms lately in the past year and a half or so, two this morning, two more next Lord's Day, more to come before the year is out. This is good. This is good. In fact, I think it is unquestionable that the growth of the church since the very history of its beginning has grown more in covenant children than in any other means or with any other outsiders coming into the church through evangelism. We have to take some time to consider the implications of this, and so we, we have taken some time and considered baptism, what it is, what it is not. And this morning I would like for us to consider another dimension of this as we consider covenantal faithfulness of the parents for the salvation of our children. Covenantal faithfulness of parents for the salvation of our children. We have a difficult time comprehending a covenantal worldview. I think this is especially true in the time and the place in which we live and where individualism, a worldview of the individual, is so strong in the modern evangelical church and even in the aftermath of revivalism of our nation that the Spirit of God did wonderful things, but it also took a very individualistic perspective in the hearts and minds of many of its recipients. But the fact... That we have just taken covenant vows, have given covenant vows to parents, taken them ourselves as a congregation for the salvation of these children that the church has baptized. And as we look to these things, it acknowledges that we all have responsibility and accountability in the salvation of the church's children. The problem we want to steer clear of is one that many Christians make, and that is for us to deny that we have responsibility for our children's faith and their salvation. Some would argue against this truth by claiming that it takes away from the individuality of the children's or the child's personal faith. That I would deny. Some argue that this is Arminianism, and it speaks against the solia gratia, or the, uh, by grace alone are we saved, because works are involved that have eternal saving implications. Again, I deny. But how we think about this doctrine of baptism and how we view our children and as we think about the succession of the covenant is profound and eternal and has significant salvific implications in the lives and the souls of our children. And this is important. We all care deeply about these things. And how we think about our children 
makes a big difference in how we parents live and how we raise them. It does have eternal implications for them and for our grandchildren and for the posterity of Christ's church. The way we think about this will lead us to be faithful or not. To trust the Lord's promises and thereafter labor according to that faith, or rather to be presumptuous with God and be negligent in our covenant duties. What we think directly affects the way we live. And that's why the scripture tells us to be renewed in our mind, cast down the vain imaginations in our mind that exalt themselves against Christ and his teaching. So it is important to address this topic of covenant faithfulness and responsibility for the salvation of our children. I've chosen a text that references God's covenant with David because from it we can learn some important points on the nature of God's covenant relationship with his people that directly relates to our child rearing and children's spiritual well-being. I have broken the message up in two, so I'm hoping to have a second part to this next Lord's Day. But I would like for us to consider from this text what a covenant relationship with God looks like. A covenant relationship, as many of us know and which we are rehearsing once again today, it includes an agreement between God and His people. God does not relate to us apart from a covenant relationship. This is the manner in which God relates to us. God sets the terms for it. He initiates that relationship. And God's covenant has promises associated with this relational agreement. It also has conditions upon which the covenant is suspended. There are blessings if those conditions are met and curses if they are not. And that is the nature of our relationship with God. Another thing to understand is that God's covenant relationship always includes more than one person. I might take a little bit of an exception to O. Palmer Robertson. A covenant is a bond between two or more people, sovereignly administered in blood. I believe it is, when he's speaking about the covenant relationship we have with God, it always includes more than two people. The smallest unit with which God establishes a covenant relationship is with a household, with a family. Even the covenant relationship between the Father and the Son includes the Spirit. Now this cuts across much of our individualistic worldview and is often a big hang-up for people to accept. When God made a covenant with Noah, it included his posterity. When God made a covenant with Abraham, it included his posterity. When God makes a covenant with David... It includes his posterity. And those promises given to the head of that covenant in which God made 
also are inclusive and given to his posterity. When the father entered into a covenant with the son, it included the son's posterity. And when we enter into a covenant relationship with God, it also includes our posterity. I'd like for us to consider a few covenantal principles to maintain, and then I would like for us to conclude with a simple, single application. I actually had to whittle down the applications because there are so many, but I am going to boil it down to one this morning. The first application or the first actual principle of the covenant that was always be maintained, never compromised, and always clung to is this. God is faithful to his covenant and to his word. Period. Two times in the opening verses of this psalm, the scripture emphasizes God's faithfulness to his covenant. Verses 1 and 2. It's something for which we praise God for. It's something which we thank God for. We see further in the scripture, in verse 35, I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie. He speaks of his faithfulness in verse 33, nor will I allow my faithfulness to fail. God is true. He never lies. He always accomplishes and does what he says. He always fulfills his promise. He is so true, in fact, that our failures and our inconsistencies with that very characteristic make it hard for us to believe the impeccability and the absolute integrity of God. It is something that we as humans do not know apart from our Creator. So never question God's faithfulness. Never take a promise that he has made and something less than the actual promise that he made. The second principle I think we need to maintain is that God's covenant with David here includes categories of people with whom the covenant was made. I'd like to bring out three of those categories. Number one, it included David personally and individually. God sovereignly chose David to be the king. David did not go looking for it. David was pretty content, writing his poetry, playing his harp, out in the sheep field with the sheep, and being the shepherd that he was called to be. He wasn't looking to be the king of Israel. For he knows it, his life was interrupted by this old man coming to look for somebody who said he would not sit down until all of Jesse's sons came. The last of which was David, who was summoned in from the field, probably with a little rolling of the eyes from the brothers. As soon as he walks in, oil gets poured on his head, and he's declared to be God's sovereign choice for Israel's king. And so it is with you. You did not choose God, but God chose you. 
into a covenant relationship so that He brings you by that grace and His sovereign administration, which is completely sovereign over every detail of your life, over every decision you have ever made, over the background and over the way that the Word of God and the Gospel came to you, He chose you. And this is a grace that you should not fail to give Him thanks for. The second category of people with whom God made a covenant in this one covenant included David's posterity. It was not just to David that this covenant was made, but he made it with his posterity, not a single son, rather, but a dynasty of sons. Down through the generations, there was a posterity, and as we see in this psalm, some of these things come out in this, verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the words that have gone out of my lips. Now there's something going on here that's nested one inside of another with God's covenant with David and to his posterity, and that is, as he then makes this, pos- this, this covenant promise, the, the third category and to whom God is making a covenant here is Christ himself. And here we see in this psalm a tremendous eternal glimpse of what is going on in eternity, which I have never seen, eyes have never seen, and neither have I ever seen, nor you. But we have been revealed and have given privilege to see something eternal through the glimpse of this psalm happen to be worked out in history and now which we are partakers of in Christ, his posterity. What God has done in this psalm has shown us not only a covenant that he established with David, not only a covenant he established with his posterity, but a covenant that God the Father made with God the Son, that he would seat him upon David's throne as the true Messiah, the Lord of lords and the King of all kings. World without end. Amen and amen. Aspects of this psalm reference Christ himself, the ultimate king of Israel, who is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. The promise then includes a promise that God, the Father, made to the Son. See, God makes a promise to David, he makes a promise to his posterity, and ultimately the posterity which would come in David or Christ himself, God the Father, is making a promise to Christ his Son. This is a promise that God had established in eternity and now is being worked out in history, and we see this unfolding in the dynasty of David. There are some truths in this psalm that do not apply to David. There are some truths in this psalm that do not apply to his posterity and only apply to Christ himself, who is the fulfillment of all these things. 
In verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I believe this phraseology here is particular to the Messiah. This word, God's firstborn, is often in reference to Christ. We shouldn't get tripped up over it. In Romans 8.29, he is the firstborn among many brethren. That's what God established him as he resurrected from the dead. He becomes the firstborn. That's why we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be a part of Christ's people where he is the firstborn of the resurrection. Colossians 1.15 says he is the firstborn over all of creation. Colossians 1.18, he is the firstborn from the dead, reflecting and referring to the resurrection and the preeminence that Christ has over all of the creation that he made. Now, a lot of people, especially the Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, get hung up on this as though the Scripture is referring to the origins of the second person of the Godhead, but that's not at all how the Scripture uses these terms. In fact, in Acts 13.33, the scripture says, Today I have begotten you. And that's a quote from an Old Testament reference, but it's speaking about the Father, speaking about the Son. Today I have begotten you. And that today, today, is speaking about his resurrection, not in his existence in eternal past. And so the point here that I don't want to get sidetracked on is this, that God was faithful to accomplish exactly what he said he was going to do. God was faithful with his eternal plan. God was faithful in keeping his word to David. God was faithful in what he said he was going to do. But what about his word to David's sons through the generations? That's the focus of our time this morning. What about the children with whom the covenant was made? What about the kids? What about the boys? Were not some of the kings of Israel not good kings or righteous kings? Does God's word hold for them like it did for David and for Christ? Put in another covenant context, what about our baptized children? Is it certain they will be saved because they have been baptized? They're in the covenant. That's the reason we baptize them. So if we believe God's promise is for us and our children, how is it that some children of Christian parents are not saved? Anybody ever struggle with this tension? How are we to view that? Was God unfaithful to his promise to us parents or to them, the baptized children? In any way, was God unfaithful? You can answer that for me right now. No. Or was the promise genuine? Was it a true promise indeed? Or should we view it some other way, more like a a proverbial truth? It works most of the time, but you can't count on it all the way. 
How is it that we can account for the fact that not all covenant children are saved? And what does that mean for us and for this church's children? And the answer boils down to covenant contingencies that are inherent in every covenant. And those covenant contingencies include responsibilities of the parents to raise their covenant children faithfully in the nurture of Christ, and it includes the responsibilities of the children to trust God's provision for them and to obey Him. And while the primary responsibility for the child's salvation is the child himself, the parents also share in the responsibilities for the child's eternal salvation. And I would extend that to even say, and the church also bears responsibility in this as well. It is a common biblical principle that others bear a portion of the responsibility for the belief or for the unbelief of another person who still retains the primary responsibility for his own personal faith. The scripture informs us that parents have obligations to the salvation of their children in both positive and negative ways. Positively, we looked at a passage this morning from Genesis 18, 17. That's a good example. Go back and reflect upon the meaning of that passage later and see there are implications here. The Old Testament passage reading from Psalm 78, 1 through 8, again, is another example of where responsibilities are shared in the belief and unbelief of our children. Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and their children forever. Your covenant faithfulness as parents has eternal consequences for your children. And what is more important to you than that? Psalm 112, verses 1 through 2, Isaiah 59, verses 19, following. The Bible is replete with this kind of example because the Bible trains us to think covenantally, not merely individually. We see negative examples of this as well. An obvious example is with Eli and his sons. When Eli did not discipline his older sons who were in the priestly ministry and were abusing their office. And God gave them a strong warning. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons More than me, to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? God says, I'm going to have none of that, and I'm going to remove them and you and give the priesthood to another. That's it. You have not fulfilled the covenant obligations. You've been unfaithful. In 1 Kings 1, verses 5 and 6, Adonijah, one of the sons of David, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, said, I will be king. 
And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He's putting some responsibility upon the father of even this grown son. While we fully subscribe to sola gratia, that salvation is all of God's grace, grace comes with contingencies. And while God's sovereignty and man's free will are both principles about which the Bible speaks frequently, we often put tension there where the Bible does not. And while the Bible is emphatic about sola gratia, by grace alone, it is equally emphatic in insisting on meeting the conditions of the covenant to obtain its benefits. Grace normally comes through means. And means implies faithful covenant activity. We are often called to our responsibility, as Paul said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that is on us. It's our responsibility to be strong in God's grace. To utilize the means of grace. To discipline ourselves unto godliness. While God is always faithful to his word and his covenant, and he never breaks a promise, those who expect to receive the blessings of what he promised must receive the promise by faith, a faith which is obedient to covenant obligations. And we parents have a real promise of salvation that has been made for our children. We don't diminish it. We don't water it down. We don't make it some proverbial truth and hope for the best. He's made a real promise to us for our children. A promise to claim by faith and a promise to believe. A promise that if truly believed will be lived out in obedience to covenant obligations in raising our children in the nourishment of Christ. Charles Hodge says, quote, They must train up their children for God. They must use the means which he has appointed for their conversion and sanctification or the promise does not apply to them. While there are aspects of the covenant promise that God will ensure will come to pass, no matter what, there are personal aspects that no one can expect to enjoy the benefits for himself unless he meets the covenant contingencies in faith. A faith that works. This is what Paul says is obedience to the gospel. This is often seen in the covenant arrangements with the if-then statements of the Scripture. Even in the example of the Davidic covenant, we see if-then statements. While God promised to David a dynasty that would endure forever, and he would certainly be true to that because he brought Christ into the world, the ultimate seed promise, and that happened, and no one could stay his hand, and he, Jesus, is called the son of David. 
True to form, true to God's promise. He has sworn to David and he will keep his word. Just like he's promised you and he will keep his word. But the personal apprehension and enjoyment of the promises of the covenant for each of David's sons would be suspended upon the conditions being met. David reiterated God's covenant to Solomon in 1 Corinthians 28.9. He says this, Solomon, listen to me, gets in his son's face. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and he understands all the intents of thoughts. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. If then, contingencies of covenant faithfulness. In Solomon's position, there were more implications that were profound because he was the king. When God addressed Solomon himself, now David's gone, and God gets in his face. And he says to him in 2 Chronicles 7 and 7 through 22, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom, as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler over Israel. But if... You turn away and forsake my statutes, my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot them from my land. Talking about the people. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. God was faithful to that promise. God's covenant relationship with us and our children must be heeded by faith, a lively faith that works. And if we lay hold on the promise that God has given to us so that we believe it, believe it to the extent that we order our lives around it in good works, we can be assured that God is faithful to keep His word. Parental, covenantal, Nurture and faithfulness is of eternal significance to the souls of our children. And it is my plea here this day to all parents and parents-to-be to be faithful with the vows that you have taken for these dear eternal children. Because as parents, you have a responsibility in the faith of your children. This does not circumvent grace, neither does it circumvent their own personal, individual faith itself, but you have responsibility too. Well, there's a host of applications I felt compelled to to give this morning. I'm going to boil it down to one, and I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes. It's the most important one. It's the one that God spoke to David, 
to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to you and to me. Parents, hear me. Be faithful yourself to God's covenant and provide a godly sample example in your home to your children. That's it. Be faithful yourself and provide a godly example in your home so your children can see it and hear it and live it. I cannot overstate the importance of your covenant faithfulness and how your faithfulness has eternal implications for your children. We go to classes and lectures and seminars to learn how to be a better parent. We learn how to do this and how to do that. But the most important thing for your children is for them to see and breathe and taste and feel and hear you living faithfully to the gospel of Jesus Christ in your home. The most significant training and the best training of your children will come in the example that you lay before them and what they hear and they see mom and dad are doing, how they respond to the Lord, how they are living their lives out. The most impactful way to change the character of your children is to repent and change yourself by the grace of God. This is first and foremost in all of your parenting and covenant nurture. It is part of the if-then conditions of the covenant that pertains to the parent's faithfulness. If you are parents and you are faithful to the covenant, not perfect, but faithful, then good things will come to your children. And I'm not merely talking about temporal good things, but eternal salvation. The greatest example you can show them in your life and in your home is the embodiment of the gospel in your life. If you are faithful living out the gospel in your life, your children will see your brokenness over sin. They will see what true ownership of your own personal sins looks like. They will see you taking responsibility for your sin and taking it before the Lord. And in brokenness of heart and spirit and of a contrite heart, you will lay it out and repent before the Lord with gravity and true godly sorrow. They will see what repentance and change of life and new decisions look like. Your children need to have visual examples of what the gospel is in their own homes. And they need to see it in their parents. This means taking complete ownership and responsibility for your personal sins. And dealing with it. And letting them see it. Confessing it, saying the same thing about it that God says about it without hedging it about, without justifying any part of it, but owning it and saying the same thing that God says about it and own it and let them see and hear you do that. 
That means repenting, changing your life, involves decision-making that shows a genuine heart desire to change your ways. It involves them seeing you go and seeking forgiveness from other people, including them when you sin against them. And God himself. They need to see what it means to be poor in spirit. And yet they need to see and experience you are giving thanks to God for Christ and His forgiveness. And the joy of salvation that comes in the forgiveness of God that cleanses a soul. And they can experience your joy and spiritual growth. If they begin to see an example of the gospel lived out in your home, you take ownership of it. You take confession and say the same thing of God. You repent of your sins. You seek forgiveness. You give God thanks and you experience the joy. Then repeat. Then repeat. Then repeat. And make this characteristic in your home. Now they're seeing the embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So often we are looking for sinlessness in our children and we are shaping a moralistic behavior so that we are trying to constrive a legal performance-based works in their life to get them all shinied up on the outside when you're not addressing the heart with the gospel. If your children have never heard you Genuinely and humbly confess your sin. Owning up to it without excuse or blame shifting in any way or couching it with conditions of qualifications that point away. If they never heard you ask for forgiveness, I'm not saying, say, I'm sorry. I'm saying, ask for something. Will you forgive me? If they've never heard those words, if they've never seen you make a resolution to follow a different direction from an errant one, if they've never seen your relief and your joy of being forgiven and heard your praise and thanksgiving for it, they are not seeing the gospel modeled in your home and you are not being faithful to your covenant obligations. How are they being nourished in Christ if the gospel is not vividly present? You're not after a sinless child, but a repentant one. One who takes ownership of his sin, not one who casts blame or shifts the blame. Not, not a child who feels entitled. Not a child who feels like God and the world owes them something. That's not what you're looking for. But a child who understands they're a sinner and who finds forgiveness of Christ voluntarily. A child who gives God thanks for this. A child who is grateful for what he has and not feels entitled for what he does not. 
This is what your children need to see modeled in your personal character, your life, how that's lived out in your home. And let me tell you, if you're like my home, and I know it is, this is the greatest opportunity you have for them to see it. Because your children know you, and they see your character, and they hear what's going on behind those walls in a way that no one else in this congregation does. And you've got more opportunities to show this demonstration to them in your home than in any other place. Folks, we're sinners, but we're saved. We've been born in Adam, but we have been raised in Christ. That's who we are. And we can live faithfully declaring that we are instruments of righteousness, reckoning ourselves dead to sin, and live faithfully for Christ, expecting good things from Him for our children. The downfall of the nation of Israel turned when Solomon multiplied his wives Wives who led his heart away from God to their gods. And the scripture forbade him to multiply wives for himself. Very explicitly in Deuteronomy, it says this. He saw that example from his father David. Your covenant faithfulness and example have eternal consequences in your home. And the most important thing you can do as a parent is model the gospel life to your children by living the gospel yourself genuinely and sincerely. Let them see it in action. This is the first thing in your covenant nurture to your children. And this is a reminder to be faithful to this covenant and baptismal vows that we reaffirmed here today. Let's repent. Let's seek forgiveness. Let's be restored. And let's glory in the good things that God has given. Let our children taste it and see it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the church's children and for the great responsibility that the church and parents have to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That their foolish hearts in which they were born in Adam can be shaped into the fear of God. And that your grace would be lavished upon them where our sin has abounded. Your grace would much more abound over us and cover them as well. So forgive us, parents, for our negligence of our duties and our faithlessness in our covenant nurture of our children. Lord, as you have given grace to us, you've given grace to them, and you have ordained a means to that grace, even through parents who nurture them in the word and point them to Christ from their earliest days. May that be our greatest joy and our greatest value in life that we see that our children are walking in the truth. And that we would so love it ourselves that the glory of Christ would shine through us and light would be seen and it would drive the darkness even out of their souls. Lord, save our children to the uttermost. 
Save our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and those yet to be born. And we pray you would keep us faithful in these covenant promises and our covenant duties as we trust and obey. Make it to be so according to your grace and your sovereign will. In Jesus' name, amen.